welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here with episode 366 and my conversation with the director of bands and the director of percussion studies at East Central University in Ada, Oklahoma, percussionist, performer, and composer, Nick Myers. We'll get back to him shortly. But first up, Marching Mizzou and other items. This past weekend was the home opener in the SEC for Mizzou as they played LSU. It was a very packed game, as sold out as I've ever seen at Mizzou. And for Mizzou, it was a great game for about three quarters. Then LSU took the lead in the fourth and finished us off for the football team's first loss of the season. And we were sad. But not totally, because the band performed part of the halftime show with the Boston Brass, an excellent and very musical group that added a lot to the halftime performance with a combined performance of Alan Vizzuti's Fire Dance. It was a good collaboration that the students seemed to enjoy a lot, and it was certainly great to hear excellent professional brass performers with the band in a stadium setting. Last note on my end, recently Mizzou has started to honor folks who've recently been promoted and or tenured at school. And Tuesday night, my excellent colleagues, Dr. Sam Griffith, Director of Jazz Studies, and Dr. Brandon Boyd, Director of Choral Activities, along with myself, were honored among nearly 100 other faculty at Mizzou for their recent promotions. It was also great because all three of us came in at the same time and have made it this far. Onward and upward. And with that... Let's get to our conversation with Nick Myers. I was glad Nick was up for this conversation. I'd heard of him through his work in Percussive Notes and hearing him on other podcasts and was happy to have him on. Nick's been involved in percussion and band directing for many years. His upbringing is in Georgia, and he's also spent a lot of time in North Dakota and now in Oklahoma. It was great to hear about his experiences and his career up until this point. One of the best points of this conversation has to do with how Nick and the folks at East Central University specifically deal with funding and developing a large and connected donor network at the school to help with this. This felt especially relevant in this current age and day, along with the importance of how to make for a better experience for students at small state institutions who don't always get the funding they need to survive and thrive. So we hear about that, golf, football, great art, and much more in this interview. So let's get to it. We recorded this over Zoom on September 28th, 2023, and it begins right now. All right, well, Nick, give me a summation of your percussion responsibilities as they are at this point. At my current institution, uh, I oversee all the percussion. And where are you at? I'm at East Central University here in Ada, Oklahoma, slightly southeast of Oklahoma City. So here at East Central University, we have a really, really nice percussion program. We've had up to three percussion uh, teachers. I oversee all the percussion, and I can have an additional one or two adjuncts based around our needs. Uh, right now, we have 12 majors and about six minors. And so with percussion here, of course, we have applied lessons, we have percussion ensemble. We have our studio class. 
the percussion will play a marching band, two concert bands, a brass band, um, jazz ensemble, and anything else that is needed here. We have a great collection of instruments that I've worked on for the past several years to really, really build. We're very fortunate. Uh, I think we're up to seven uh, marimbas, uh, multiple vibraphones, xylophones. We we even have our own steel band that we uh, get going every spring and are looking forward to bringing in some more world percussion. Tell me about getting the job and where you were before then and the status of the program when you entered. First of all, I'm originally from Georgia. I came to this job in Oklahoma from North Dakota, way up near the Canadian border. I was actually working at two institutions. I was the director of bands and percussion at Valley City State University in Valley City, North Dakota. And I also was the assistant director of athletic bands at North Dakota State University, where I, I took care of the marching percussion, uh, oversaw graduate assistants, and several other duties. So I got this job uh, in the spring of 2018, moved down here over the summer. Uh, when I came here uh, to ECU, um, the percussion numbers were slightly down. We were, we were about four majors at the time, a drum line of about 10 or 12 players. They hadn't been doing much on the side of percussion, and I was looking forward to getting that going in a state where like marching band and percussion is very big here in Oklahoma. And over the over the past six years, I've been able, like I've said before, I bring it up to about 12 majors on yearly. And even at one point, I had two graduate uh, percussion majors. So it's come a long way with uh, the students on the major and the minor side and the acquiring uh, percussion instruments. I have a lot of alumni who donate specifically for percussion that has allowed me to buy instruments, more music. Um, we're right down the street from Doug tomorrow, so we get to visit him uh, annually to go see how these instruments are made. I'm very fortunate I'm able to take um, all my students to uh, PASIC every year. I, I can um, provide room and board to get them there. So they have a lot of options on seeing guest artists traveling to Indianapolis and everything in between. Oh, that's great. Is the ability to take students, is, do they have like a student organization that that kind of helps set that up? Or is it just kind of like a budget thing and you that's kind of covered there? It's it's through uh, the, the music department. So uh, being the director of bands, I have a a travel budget for all the various ensembles. And I can use a little bit of that toward the percussion ensemble, but a lot of it comes from our, our alumni who donate specifically to percussion. We're able to get cars or one of the mini buses and go up there. So it's very, I'm very fortunate. And the students are learning how fortunate they are because they'll go talk to their friends at other institutions. They're like, well, we don't even go to PASIC. We don't even travel to this. And they're like, oh, I thought that was the norm. And I said, no, that is not the norm. We are very fortunate to be able to take you to events and have um, guest artists each semester on campus. You know, my idea was, I wasn't able to see all these things when I was an undergrad. I was like late going to PASIC and seeing all these guest artists. And I was like, you know, as an educator, I want 
those undergrads who most likely won't go on to graduate school to see all those things, live in it, experience it. So they can, they can take that out and get, hopefully their students, uh, you know, like tell them that those stories to get them going on and so forth. You know, we all love uh, telling stories, uh, to our students and you want to see that excitement in their eyes and that interest to come about. I want to know a little bit more about the kind of the alumni part, because is this a, like a donor network that you, that's like part of your job you see is to kind of create a culture where you have people who want to help that program and the way that you've developed those relationships? Yes, that's a great question. And we have a foundation here at East Central University. Most institutions have a foundation that work with alumni on supporting things on campus. And this institution is very different than anywhere I've been. And me being the director of bands and even any of the other applied uh, faculty here are able to work with the foundation to go out and get money. But specifically with me in my position, I have a lot of contact with an alumni here, a lot of contact one-on-one. This institution doesn't put a wall up where it's like, we'll find the money. We don't want you talking to anybody here. It's like, no, we want you to invest. We want you, we want our alumni and sponsors to know who they're giving the money to. So we want you to go out there. When I arrived at East Central University, like I had done my research and I started finding that we have a lot of really, really great alumni. For instance, uh, one of the most prolific composers of band music, his name's Ed Huckabee. He's an alumni of East Central University. All right. He gives money back to the program. One of our recent alumni just won um, a Grammy for best classical album. I've met this person. Another gentleman has just won his third Emmy award. I've made relations with this person. And, what we've done is try to put together um, things like I reach out to recent alumni who want to give back. And they're like, well, I don't have a lot of money. So we find something that works for them. So I go, well, can you give $10 a month for 12 months? And they say, well, that's not much. But if you have 100 alumni giving $10 back a month, you start bringing in a lot of money for the music department. And here... I walked into a job that had multiple endowments for scholarships and for me to buy gear and do whatever I wanted with. And that's not normal at a lot of schools where you have endowments. I mean, we I, for the band, I have uh, five endowments to use for the band and percussion. I'm very, very fortunate. And I try to educate the students because, you know, remember being 18, 19, you're like, what's an endowment? <laughs> you know, oh. what does that do? And it's like, okay. 25, so, 27. Yeah. Same question. Right. <laughs> you know, and so like I use it as a, a chance to, to teach the students. All right. This is what ha- an endowment is this. We get earnings back that I can use to you to give the scholar for you for your scholarship, that horn in your hand, that music, that flip folder, those sticks. That's coming from money that alumni have donated. Yes, we get money from the state, but like any other public or uh, private institution, it is it has been cut back drastically, even from my first year to now. I mean, we have a quarter of the funding from the state. so. Going to those alumni, and I've learned, like, I never ask, if you were alumni, I wouldn't say, hey, Pete, 
I know you've never met me, but I need you to give me money. I would never do that. It sometimes it takes a couple of years for a relation to build as we're going through and coming off of that. That's been really cool. And yes, that is part of my job to go out there and build those relations. And those relations have helped bring to help bring people on campus, the alumni, to get them at the events to see where their money is going, how the students are helping. And the students, if I have an alumni working uh, with a student, I want them to build a relationship together so they can know a little bit more about each other. I invite them all the time. We write thank you cards. We've even done thank you videos. Nice. You know, some people, the students are like, is that going overboard? I said, you can never go overboard when somebody's giving you money. Mm-hmm. I said, I remember the people from my undergrad, my graduate degrees that helped give me money. And I'm so thankful for them. Yeah. Yeah. That's an excellent point. It's really important to also note, you, you alluded to this a little bit, but state institutions and in particular, small state colleges really get the short end of the funding in ways that I don't think people, a lot of people know. No, that's correct. The smaller schools, um, it shows more, uh, a bigger, yes, that's it. That's exactly it. A bigger institution. And I can name some that are around us are in the same pool, but I don't know what the words, they can shelter it or they can hide it better than a regional institution. I mean, we're here at ECU's about 3,500 to 4,000 students. That's a good number of students for a regional school. Mm-hmm. It's a great number. But unfortunately, if we take a hit, you see it more. You might see it yes. in the parking lots. You might see it in uh, building maintenance and stuff. And unfortunately, people go, oh, sometimes because they see that. And it's, it's not technically, they go, well, this school, this big school is doing okay. You know, can't really, I mean, unless yeah. you live and work in it, you don't see it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's so true, so true. Because you're a small regional state school, what ends up being the recruiting kind of lo- ge- geography that you're you're tending to work in? We're all involved in recruiting here at the school in one way or another. And recruiting to me is seen in many, many ways. Uh, getting stu- students on campus, me going out one-on-one to work with percussion and bands, me taking an ensemble out to perform. I get that all the time. I just uh, Last night, somebody's like, can you bring the marching band to do an exhibition in four weeks? Uh, if I can find money for a bus or buses. So we don't have like a little pocket here in Oklahoma. I go to the entire state. I go to Arkansas. I go to North Texas because we pull students from those states, because this, uh, the, the music program here is well known throughout this region, uh, specifically in regards to band directors. East Central University and another regional school, we have more music ed students in the state of Oklahoma than any other school. And I'm very proud of that. Uh, and they dip down into the North Texas area, the western part of Arkansas. So some people might have like, oh, we're in just this quadrant here. I'm going completely throughout Oklahoma as much as I can into North Texas and even Arkansas. And that goes through digital, uh, excuse me, digital recruiting. That means like sending out audition posters or calling a band director and be like, Hey, can we set up a zoom call with your students similar to you and I are talking to answer questions. 
So a lot of times in Oklahoma, people have marching band at seven in the morning, mm-hmm. seven yeah. to eight, seven to eight thirty, and they they always ask, "Can you please come?" I yes, I can come, and I'm not gonna lie. There's been times where I have to get up at two thirty and three and hit the road. Right. Is it a long day? Yes. But if I can get a student or two or help somebody uh, be successful, it's worth it. (laughs) And that's been a a lot of long days of traveling. And of course, I want to get students from everywhere. But I I also like helping because a lot of schools will say, can we don't have any money? Can you come out here and help us? And I said, of course, if I can find a way to get to your institution, I will get there. And, of course, I'm always recruiting. I said, I'm always here. My my number one thing is to help you and recruit in any way possible. And sometimes it might take two or three years to get a student from there because every student in the music program on the instrumental side here, they met me probably around their freshman or sophomore year in high school. And they built that relationship up. I don't want to say sometimes – sometimes it's based on trust, Mm-hmm. Versus a lot of people come in and they see them one time and they're just like, oh, you're just a body. These students were either in an honor band that I met them with, uh, all state that I worked with them. It's just I'm building a relationship up versus hitting them one time. That does take some time. And a lot of people don't want to put that amount of time into it. But I was like, if they're going to live with me four or five years in college. I want to know who they are. Well, I know another part of your career um, is composition. Uh, so, but the way in is, I want to want to talk to you about being part of the composition committee for PAS. So, what, tell me about your involvement getting into there and that committee. Okay, getting on to the committee was the first thing. I remember. Boy, when did I start on that? <laughs> okay, I've been trying to go back here. Uh, I had just finished my doctoral degree, and so I was free to have anything, and I've had lots of committee work at the institutions I worked before. So I was like, you know, I want to do more for PAS. So I applied for an opening on the composition committee. All right. So I applied there, and I remember uh, Josh Gottry was the chair at the time, and so he set up all these uh, uh, phone calls and he sent me out some questions to answer, and I answered them to truthfully. And I said, I want to be on this committee. I love percussion. I love composition. I'm energetic. I want to help us move forward and open the door. And he was like, that's great. And then like a week later, I got an email saying, welcome to the committee. So I was like, man, this is cool. This is one of my – to me, it was really, really big. I had served as – the North Dakota PAS uh, chapter president before that. So to me, I was like, man, here we go. I get that really, really help and give back. And that's something I really like. And I, I tell my students, it's like, you're in education. You're going to be on committees to help people. You're not going to ever get paid, but you're going to get paid with that idea that you're helping people in mm-hmm. several ways. So I started on the committee. And I believe I was on the committee for one or two years. And then Josh Gottry's uh, uh two year, uh, two, not two year term, but two terms, uh, six years had come up and then they had an opening, uh, for the chair of the committee. And so I applied for that. I had to apply and talk to, uh, Julie, uh, Julie Hill, who was the president of PAS at that time. And so she went through with all of us and did a formal interview and asked us. And I said, look, you know, I'm, I feel, I feel very energetic. I love this committee. I've been on several committees, 
X, Y, and Z that I talked to her about. I said, I'm always tending PASIC. I am very quick on returning emails, you know, and getting information out throughout the year to people that I work with. And I said, I would love this opportunity to lead this organization. And in about four weeks later, I got an email that says, welcome, welcome. You're the chair of the PAS composition committee. And I, I, I just said, wow, this is really cool. Really, really cool. I've already had worked with these people on the committee. I knew a lot of them already before I was on the committee, and it was just fun. I went to work <clears throat> finding a way of how I would be talking to these people and get the information out. Because at this time, it, it, the, hey, okay, this wasn't that long ago when we started this. Like when we had the composition contest, we used to do things in physical, physical paper uh, adjudication of of things for the committee and all that. And eventually we started turning them over to the digital side and making things a lot easier. And our goal was to really try to open up the, the contests and reach as many people as possible. The biggest part of our committee was uh, this international composition contest. But we also were writing solos for what was at the time the rhythm scene block. Um, the committee would write six uh, solos based around a specific instrument uh, with a rubric designed for more of a high school level. And the idea behind these were they were a free solo that was slightly, maybe a minute to two minutes long. It came with the, the solo. It came with a video of the composer performing it and a little bit of background information. Our, 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 our idea was how can we give back to our community? So these were all free items that could be passed around the world. And, of course, we had the, the, the big composition contest. And there was some uh, restructure of that. We went from two contests, uh, and then we reformulated, and we came out with one big contest. And now we're getting – well, they – we before I left, we were getting back into the idea of two contests. And then when I left, uh, they, uh, they've been working on that as well. Um, and the idea was what can we give back uh, to percussion on the composition side – uh, the idea of quality over quantity as much as we can. Uh, the, the, the earnings for the winner went up uh, quite substantially over the past several years. We started recognizing even people who did not get a monetary uh, uh, award. We, we just wanted to try to spread the word as much as possible about these wonderful compositions and try to uh, – we tried some – categories if you look over the years the different categories yes we had some of our standards that we would say like solo marimba snare drum timpani and we branched out to try some things that uh weren't uh on the usual docket like solo glockenspiel we can say we tried it there were some really really cool pieces that came out with it and as we went forward we tried to do things with percussion and another instrument a non-percussion instrument to see what would come out and just go from there. So, man, that that was a fun six years. And I got to work with PAS even more because I was going to more meetings. I got to work with Joshua Simons and the executive uh, committee at PAS and learn more of the workings of the Percussive Art Society and what we do at PASIC and everything else. And there's a lot more I'm leaving out from the committee that we did. You know, we, we wrote up the reviews of the winning works. Uh, we did a copyright, a national copyright uh, document that could be used for all instrumentation, which was very interesting uh, and so forth. 
for you, how much of a part of composition is still part of what you do? And how do you work in compositional aspects if you do with either studio or just private students? How does that all come together? Okay, cool. Yeah, that's a great question. And it just depends on the part of the year and how much time I have. <laughs> so composition sure. for me, I, I'm always doing something. Sometimes it might be a couple measures a week where I'm able to sit down and write more. So within my job, like I'm, I'm looking over to my left on, on my marimba over here in my office, I started writing a collection of uh, du- marimba duets. Uh, that's one of my recent works is the idea that they, I haven't found any marimba duets for young students and the idea over here that i have been playing around with is we're going to have a four and a third marimba and i'm going to write four to six uh duets that gradually get harder that would be um um be appropriate to high school level students just two mounts two mounts two players two mounts on a four and a third octave marimba well they could play it on a xylophone and vibraphone honestly the idea is writing something exclusively for them that's not maybe a flute duet that you play on marimba sure. right? yeah. that's <laughs> still okay but i want something like something organic written for them so i'm writing a lot of things here in my office and the idea is i'm writing them to get out but also i want my students to see that like in percussion studio i'll talk about it I'll talk about it. And one of my adjuncts and I, we played one of the duets on a recital not too long ago. So they can see, I want my students to see that creative process that's like right here. And when they come in for lessons, I'll say, hey, come over here with me. Let's sight read this piece together. So they're sight reading it. They're seeing something that's new on the spot. It's handwritten. So that's a lot of times that's what happens here uh, on campus. And every semester I'm writing something different. Um, I write all the... uh, the marching band arrangements, the drumline parts, the drill. So they get to see that item firsthand and I can uh, write those parts specifically for them because a marching band arrangement of the winds is arrangement. I feel like when I write the drumline parts, that's still more composing versus arranging at time. You know, it's different on that aspect. And then um, also, and also on the drumline side, I'm sure there's a there's a lot of times where it well it depends on what kind of music you're writing that there's a lot of times where you're like okay I can just kind of float this pattern in or these um these repeated ostinato figures that are just going to work cuz it's a pop song or something like that and you're like I can just kind of throw this in and almost speed the process up at times probably <laughs> yeah yes it's dependent on the music we do multiple shows here and a pre-game show for the marching band it's fun and uh I get the students, some of them are really into like, oh, I want to learn how to compose. Some are like, I'll try it. And some of them are just like, I'll just buy music. And I said, that's okay. Yeah, we need those people too. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe they'll come back to it. But it also goes into the side of improvising. Because like, I can sit there in studio class and be like, I worked up, I've been working on this new marimba solo and I'll play something in three keys and I'll say, what do you think about it? And they'll be like, oh, that's really cool. I said, I just made that up. And I said, that's how I start a composition. I play around or improvise. And I go, I can go this way or this way based on my feelings sometimes, or if I want something lyrical or more rhythmic, and I'll show them that. And everybody's scared to f- that they're going to fail at composing. I was like, you got to start somewhere. Remember when you wrote your first paper? It probably was horrible. And yeah. I said, that's what, a lot of times with composing, it, you got to think about that. 
Yeah. You've got to start somewhere. And you're going to do it in one way or another. And arranging falls into composing as well. Yeah, you can do it yeah. in exact transcription, or you can dig into it and make that arrangement go somewhere else. And today, with our performance or our education majors, I'd say you're going to do it in one way or another. You, you, you you're, you're, I'm telling you, you, down the road, you're going to call me and be like, I had to write something. I'd be like, I know. <laughs> I tried to get you going when you were here. And yeah. I get I get commissions. Uh, uh, I'll work two or three commissions a year. I could do more. I just don't have the time. I I refuse to try to overwhelm myself. I want it to come normal. And right. a lot of the pieces were able to play with the percussion ensemble here mm-hmm. or the band. But we also commission other composers to write for us as well. Just because I can write it doesn't mean I need to do everything. So sure. we try. I try to reach out to friends to write pieces as well for us, to make a video, to premiere a performance. And I try to get them on campus to talk about that as well. I mean, I have my own website. I, you can see my, my works on there. I, I have a relationship with C. Allen Publications, Permis Publications, and I do a lot of uh, self-publishing. It's just... It's it's very enjoyable and relaxing. It, I tell people it's like if you like reading a book, I like writing music. Mm-hmm. And the older I've gotten, I, I remember going through my masters, and my teacher was like, "Nick, you got to write harder music and all that." I said, "Why do I have to write harder music?" And he said, "Because I said so." I was like, "Okay." <laughs> you know, it's like you know, you see somebody go through a comp program, and I understand it. You have to push yourself to see what you can do and he goes after i graduate then he said you can do whatever you want and i understood after i got through there the push and see what happens and i love writing music for younger students Mm. younger students because i still feel like there's a hole there in the percussion repertoire we have beginning music and i mean there are some pieces but if you look at most of them they're pretty technical in advance and we're missing a lot of uh, uh, music, I don't want to say high school or young student, uh, but somewhere between beginner and a medium range, we're, we're missing some literature for ensembles uh, and solo instruments to help them build that ability to get to the next level, I think. And uh, I'm very fortunate when I go out to these high schools, I see what their instrumentation is. And these students, they'll come to our c- contest and they're like, we can't ever play that. We can't do that. We can't. We, we have a vibraphone and a xylophone. Well, I think more people need to write for what's in the classroom of your average school that you're going to see. And some people are fearful about doing that. And I was like, I don't know why. It's there. People are going to to. There's a need for it. Yes. Well, awesome. All right. Well, Nick, let's back up. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Augusta, Georgia, right on the Savannah River on the eastern side of South Carolina. Uh, were you close to the uh, where the Masters is? That's my hometown. Um, uh, I stayed in Augusta for my undergrad, and I would drive past the Masters going to college every morning. And I tell people, if you think the, that golf tournament is like – people are like, oh, it's so pretty. I was like, you have no idea. I've been to it six or seven times growing up. And at the Masters, it's like you walk through there, and it's like it's like they manicured the woods. I was like, there's no pine cones on the ground, there's no trash on the ground. Yeah. It's just it's just like the pine straw, and it's like the trees are. It's like 
that tree looks weird. And it's like, no, it's been manicured for decades and all that. And the grass is so like perfect. Yeah. And the food is so good. But you got people walking around with machine guns at this place, uh, armed security. It's, I think it's still a no fly zone. Yeah. <laughs> this is, this is, I've heard, I have friends who have gone to it and they, and th- their exact thing is just like, you won't believe the the manicured nature of it's it's like a painting or something like that you know yeah yeah <laughs> you know you know what it, it might even be like when they show a picture of of a campus i always think of, think of this when i that i'd like see a campus picture and i and I, it would look like everything would look perfect and you'd be like well no like three of those buildings are under construction i know because i walked by it it's like it's like no it's actually like the picture no it's it's unbelievable. <clears throat> and we could talk about this a while. It There's so much money there that yeah. you had the Masters Golf Tournament. I mean, the course itself right there and all the land around it, they have bought for about a quarter mile, like literally almost all around. And they just tore the homes down and they grew grass and they have these fancy, like I'll call it party houses that they have created and landscape parking lots. And I'm just like, man, this is a lot of money right here. And I was fortunate to go. Um, my father owned a heating and air company, and he did business with the the uh, Augusta Nationals. Yeah. And so we were able to go out there, and he would be repairing and working on that. And they would give me a little badge when I was younger, and I could walk around and all that. Living in Augusta, the people who lived there, it was a lot harder for you to go or us to go to the tournament. We lived there. Yeah. It, it would have been easier for you or me living away from Georgia now to get a ticket because I have to come there, buy, pay, uh, rent, this or that to go there. That uh, when, the, when the Masters Golf Tournament took place, that was our spring break. Mm-hmm. We you could not be around Augusta, and everybody would like rent their house out. Of course, yeah, and that would probably like pay for like a lot. I would imagine. I like if you had just a, a two bedroom like condo. Okay, yeah. you know one bath, two condo. I mean, you could easily get fifteen hundred to two grand for that week. Yeah. Yes, and some of these houses that were really really ritzy, they would be getting like forty. $50,000. And I talked to a lady I used to work with. She rent her house out and she was like, how do you think we, we paid our house off in 10 years? <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It, I love golf. And I grew up in the, like I call it the golf capital of the U S and the golf yeah. team at my undergrad was phenomenal and all that. That's all we ever knew. Golf, golf, golf. And I moved away and I was like, why can't I find good, good golf courses? And I was like, Oh, there's a reason. <laughs> Oh, those are great points. So when does uh, percussion and or music enter your life then? I remember being in elementary school and I remember riding around with my dad and this was in the eighties and they had so many memorable tunes on like, I know this sounds nerdy. Like I can remember riding with my dad and listen to Hall and Oates. Yeah. Seeker. Absolutely. And I was like, that's such a cool song, dad. You know, it was so nice. I love the 80s music. It was so memorable. And then we had this thing coming out in the 80s called MTV. Yeah. 
<laughs> and it, I would go home and watch, like, I forget, was it the top 20 or the 25 countdown or something like that? And I would watch that every day. And I was just amazed. My mom was like, you're just staring at the TV. And I was like, uh-huh. And I thought it was the coolest thing. And at the elementary school I was at, we had fifth grade band. And we had this new lady come in, this young band director. And everybody thought, God, Miss Miss Miss." Miss Hall is so cool. She played the saxophone. She'd be up there at the assembly with sunglasses playing on something jazzy. And everybody's like, I want to be like her. And I wanted to be like her. And so listening to all that great music at the time and then MTV. And then we had this band director come in and like she would whip out a tuba. And of course, when you're young and she's playing like something really, really simple, but she was playing a tuba and she could do everything. Like hot cross buns sounded really cool back in the day or whatever she was playing. And we we're like, she can play more than one instrument. Oh, my goodness. So I wanted to get in band. Um, my parents were anti-band. <laughs> I, uh, you're not going to like that. I was like, I want to do band. So sixth grade left. And I was like, and they were like, all right, we need you just to shut up. We're going to let you try seventh grade band to see what happens. And I was like, OK. Seventh grade band. I went to one of these big schools. And. I still use this idea when I teach some of the ed classes here. Like the band writer is like, I want you to put on the index card three instruments you could see yourself playing. Okay. And so we had that test. We went through there and she did the woodwind and then she did the brass and then she did the percussion and then she wrote what she wanted you to play and kept it. And so the next day, Nick was playing baritone. And I said, I don't want to play baritone. I want to play percussion. She said, everyone wants to play percussion or saxophone. It doesn't work like that here. I want to play percussion. No. Next. And so, like, I was upset. Yeah. I was upset. And I told my mom and all that. She was like, well, I talked to her. And they, they worked out a deal. They said, if Nick can take private lessons and get well above where he needs to, I will let him play percussion. Okay. That changed everything. Mm-hmm. Started taking lessons in seventh grade, middle school, high school, undergrad, graduate, doctoral program, even in between. I've taken lessons all through that point, and I loved lessons, and I started just going forward very quickly. Mm-hmm. It was a, This was a challenge that I could accept and all that. And so the second semester of seventh grade, I was in the back playing percussion. I was last chair because back, that, back then you stood in the row – of where you placed in your chair placement. So to my right was the first chair, and there was like 14 of us, and I was 14. But each chair placement, I started working my way up the line, yeah. and it was so fun. And then middle school, then high school came, and my freshman year in high school, I, I have it over here. Um, and my freshman year in high school, I marched in the Macy's Day Parade. Awesome. Yes. We didn't, I didn't know in, in eighth grade, they said, you're going to be going into Macy's. What's, what's that? I don't know. Everybody was like, I don't know. Okay. So, and it just flourished from there. I went to, I was very fortunate. I went to a high school that had over 300 people, multiple concert bands, our own percussion teacher and all that. So I started learning four mallets in freshman year. We had this nice rosewood instrument and everybody <laughs> wanted to play rain dance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah I, I believe it <laughs> had recently come out and that was the new hot thing on the street rain dance mm-hmm. rain dance. and i remember uh you know you know rebecca kite made those cds and rain dance mm-hmm. was on there and i bought the cd and yeah. i was like i can do that that lady's phenomenal i can do yeah. this and all that and so we all worked on rain dance and some people couldn't get it and some people kept and all that and it just blossomed from there i was very fortunate 
to start going to these honor bands. We'd go here. I grew up in Georgia, so we would go to the University of Georgia to do honor bands or to Winthrop University, and that's where I met uh, B. Michael Williams, and I wanted to go study with him and all that. <laughs> and, you know, it just it started something I wanted to do. But my parents are always like, don't you want to be something else? I said, no, I want to be a, I want to be a drummer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. While that is going on, were you involved in anything outside of music, whether it's either church-related or student government or sports or anything else that was filling out your time? Yes, and it was just natural that I did other things. Like being in Augusta, I played golf for quite a while. Uh, I remember in middle school, I played. We had a middle school golf team. I tried for the golf team in high school. It just wasn't good enough. I mean, the people around me, they're just like, I was like, wow, we're, we're in high school and you're shooting in the low 80s. That's <laughs> like, I can break, barely break 100 here. But I kept that up. It was really, really fun. That's something my dad and I and friends, we love to play golf. It was nice getting out there and walking. And I didn't know it at the time, but it was a nice mental break. And I, it's really weird. Like, I just did it. It was a nice mental break. It was healthy. I was out there walking. And I played golf well into uh, my 20s before I, I had an accident that I stopped playing golf. We would just get out and go play football. Uh, student government and uh, undergrad, I was in student government, but it was still in music. Uh, the orchestra had its own uh, president, vice president, and all that. So I was the president of the orchestra in my undergrad. It's still in music, but it was part yeah. of the student government. Uh, yeah. So we had that going on. I was involved in my church, but I was so busy when I was young that unfortunately it it wasn't until my later 20s and 30s where I started doing more for my church. Like currently I'm the treasurer and I'm an elder for my church down the street. And my wife plays organ. But, yeah, yeah. but, you know, my father and I would go hunting. We'd get out and, you know, he liked hunting. I grew up with that with some friends. So that mm -hmm. was another outlet that I didn't realize so later on in life that I was already – doing this and getting a mental break, which I urge my students to do. That's a big part of my teaching is like, you've got to find something that you like to do that's not within your area. Even though like we, we love music, I go home and turn the radio on and music It's like, but there's times where I need to turn the radio off and just listen to the air coming through the trees in the woods Yeah, and all that. So I was very fortunate. I do stuff outside of music. I even worked for a pharmacy. I worked for my eye doctor. So I was able to do all kind of things uh, that were just very different, but they were also away from music. And it made me want to go back to music even more. I don't know if I was, uh, if I got rest from doing that or just a mental break, but I got back to that practice room and I got right back in it. But I was like, as an undergrad, I was never, I never had burnout from music. And I think it was because I was doing different things. Yeah. I hear you. No, I think that's really, really important. I'm glad you're pushing that lesson to your students. I think they, they need to hear it. Um, you know, in so many ways on the hunting side, what were you typically hunting? Was this deer or was this other stuff? When I was in elementary school, I had a bunch of friends and they were like, we're going hunting, hunting. And I was like, what's hunting? You know, like, <laughs> what do you do? And so I would go up and they would go deer hunting. And this isn't something I did like a lot, but it was, we'd go out there and go deer hunting. And then a friend's uh, father, they would take me like turkey hunting. And it was all new to me. And of course, when I was young, I was like, oh, I want to be like my friends. 
and I want to try this. And it became more than just hunting. It was like we're just getting out in the woods. And I love being in the woods. It's just it, you're getting away into nature and all that. So, yes, uh, we would go uh, deer hunting primarily. And as I got older, I started getting into bird hunting here. Uh, our recent uh, our, our choir director, he recently retired, an older gentleman, and he has 50 acres here. And he's like, here's the keys. Do whatever you want. So I go out there and we drive four-wheeler trucks around. And, you know, I still can go deer hunting when I want to or just get out there and just walk through the woods picking up pecans or, depending on the year, wild plums. It kind of goes back to my childhood, too. And it reminds me a lot of what my father and I did. Uh, when I was younger, I mean, I could do more, but it's, you know, I, I'm not one, I don't like go out and shoot multiple deer a year. It's like I shot a deer last year and one in the year. My wife and I love venison and we use it. We never, uh, what's the word, uh, abuse that, that ability to go hunt mm-hmm. and uh, fishing. Uh, I bought, I bought a boat last year. Nick, I said, Nick needs a new outlet. I bought a boat. It was partially, uh, remember growing up with my father he was an avid fisherman and it brings back memories and my wife and i just like to get out there fish just ride around get some sun and it's another outlet and and one that i can do fairly easy here in oklahoma because there's a lot of uh, lakes to get to so how do you and why do you end up at was it augusta state yes sir yeah so how do you end up and why are you there for undergrad Okay, <laughs> good question. So I grew up in Augusta, like Augusta State University. It's, it's Augusta University now. It's changed its name. I grew up taking lessons there and playing in the Youth Symphony, and it was right there in town. Um, I wanted to go away. I wanted to go away. Like I attended UGA's University of Georgia band camps and uh, the Winthrop University. I really wanted to go to Winthrop University, and I got a great scholarship. But my parents didn't want me to go anywhere. They felt that if I went somewhere, uh, I like to just do music and nothing else, and it was going to cost them a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. I ended up staying at Augusta State, and it was a, it was a really it was a really good choice, you know. But I, it, it's hard to go back. Like I gained a lot of opportunities by going to Augusta State that I could talk about. But I, I missed out on some other ones. And but that's life, right? You know, sure. I wanted to go here. Part of it is I wanted to go away. Like yeah. most of us are like, I want to get away and I always come home. Yeah, yeah. But you know, I went to Augusta State. I already had knew I already had been taking lessons from the percussion teacher, and he was like a father figure to me, and he was really, really nice, and he was really, really good. And of course, it was very inexpensive because I could live at home and go, and I got scholarships which is important in the grand scheme of things. If I would have went to another school, I probably would have been in debt real quick. Sure. And Nick and Nick wanted to go to graduate school. Even when I was in high school, I had this idea, I'm going to graduate school. I don't know really what for, but I need that to get to the next level. It might've been told to me that I was doing that, but yeah. going to Augusta state, it was fun. I met so many of my friends and a lot of them I talk, talk still talk to today who have become uh, <clears throat> professionals at other universities. But uh, here's one of the cool things. Like age 18, I started playing with the symphony in town. I started mm-hmm. playing with the opera shortly after that. That was something that none of my friends abroad were doing. And I was right. getting paid for it. So what I didn't get maybe from being at this school, I got the chance to directly go into performing and getting a paycheck. I remember yeah. playing Christmas Eve my freshman year 
and getting this check for like several hundred dollars. And I was like, what? He was like, yeah, sorry, can't get more. Yeah. And I was like, I played timpani on four tunes. This is, and we had two rehearsals. He said, mm-hmm. Thank you. We'll call you back. And I was, I was like, <laughs> and I took that serious. One of my best friends, he was a horn player. We got these gigs all the time because, you know, we, we were on time. We were prepared. And I think we were, we were pretty good for where we were in our lives. Wasn't yeah. extra, we weren't extraordinary, Terry, but we knew what we needed to do. And our teachers said, if we don't get these students out into the real world really quick, they're going to be behind. And I was really fortunate to do that and and so forth. And eventually I came back to Augusta State, and that was my first teaching job. Hmm. Well, you, you also forgot to mention that you were doing all those things to get the jobs. And I'm assuming that you were also pleasant to be around, which is also really, really important. Yes. Yeah, yeah it was fun. It was fun. <laughs> yeah. What was the program like, uh, like for undergrad in terms of like, was there, were they, were you doing a lot of ensemble stuff where was the, was it like complete percussion? Was it, uh, did it have a focus? Generally the focus at that time was either music ed or performance. I started in music ed and I got in some of those ed courses and I was like, this is boring. I, I, I don't like to tell that to myself. No, I know. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just like, Come on, I don't want to. I don't want to do that. So I yeah. changed the performance. Even though I taught in the high school later on in life, I changed <laughs> the performance. We had a we had a orchestra. We had a small orchestra. We had a, a band. We had a jazz band. <clears throat> very small percussion ensemble on, on that side. So I did as much as I could because <clears throat> I said I like this, and I was one of those people. People, I just I did. <laughs> did too much like we all do as an undergrad i ended up loving the orchestra the orchestra like i said it was on the smaller size and it might have not been the strongest but i love the lady who led it i still talk to her today i just had to do a nasm report and she's with nasm and i called her up because it's somebody i met and i trust her if yeah. she told me to do something i would i really I, I trusted her when i was young and i trusted her when I was older and I tell my students that I said, you might not like what comes out of my mouth or somebody else. I said, I'm here for you. You're going to come back to me. And they do. Yeah. And what I liked about this lady in the orchestra, she played all these standards. Mm -hmm. By the time I graduated, we were talking, I said, I played like 40 different composers over the five years of my undergrad. And I said, now when I go out and play with orchestras, like I, I feel really comfortable because of you. I was like, you know, I remember being 18 years old. We played a movement from a Beethoven symphony. We couldn't do the whole symphony, but we did a, this and we did a Mozart overture and we did something modern because she would always do something 20th century, maybe something from the romantic and something from the classical to have yeah. a varied program. And I use that in band and perk ensemble today. Yeah. And I got to play in a jazz band and I didn't realize it at the time. But I was playing with one of the best jazz trombonists in the world who's from Augusta, Wycliffe Gord. Nice. <laughs> and then there was a gentleman who was in the Army, got out of the Army. He would come and play. He was an Army band. He came and played with me in jazz band. His name was Eric Hargrove. He was the last drummer for James Brown who right. lived in Augusta. Yes. <laughs> so I'm getting all this stuff going here. And then we had the concert band and we got to play really great literature. And then I got to play percussion with the choir. They're like, we need a djembe player for this. I was like, okay, I want to do it. So I had all these experiences, but again, 
I didn't know that until right, I got sure. my master's program talking with people. Yeah. And it ended up like what I thought when I was young is like, oh, I can't go to where I want to go. <laughs> so like, wow, I had some a lot of real life experiences that I could use not only for performing, but teaching and like just telling my students here, you know, yeah. because we learn a lot. I mean, I, you don't learn more from this or anything, but like, yes, I, I teach percussion. But I tell stories about experiences and you can learn just as much as your lessons on a different side, if that makes sense. You know, those experiences of like who my teacher took lessons from this lineage this is like when I go somewhere, I was like, no, oh, I want to do my master's. Uh, my teacher, he was a student of uh, Saul Goodman and Hawkreiner. You know? And mm-hmm. so like, that's a really cool experience to say. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that's fantastic. Um, and I'm glad that at some point, you you kind of realized that this was you this was like a really special group of experiences that you just didn't even you were just doing it because you were doing it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like it's, I tell the students here, they don't. And I think I can say that for any undergrad, a lot of times you don't realize what you are a part of until you graduate. <clears throat> yes. It's like I tell them, it's like here, East, East Central University, it's like we're going to PASIC. And then like what happens at PASIC? because I was the committee chair or this person, this person, I could open the door and we can walk backstage. Yes. And I can introduce them to all these people. Like here's Joshua Simons. Here's he's the head of PAS. And here's this famous drum set player. Let's walk into here. Oh, Dave Weckl is sitting down. Students, do you want to meet them? They're like, right. Yeah. (laughs) I don't talk to Mr. Weckl. I don't know what to say. I know. (laughs) Yeah. And so, they they won't get it truly, I think, until they graduate and they start talking to uh, their, of their experiences, and people will be like, "You did what?" <laughs> right, right. Well, this is also, I think, really important. Like, for instance, I had a, uh, a student ask me recently about a piece he's he's working on, and whether I knew what there was something that was in the the marking and the part that I I was I made a guess, but I wasn't sure. But I knew the composer, and I'm like, I'll just text the composer. And like literally five minutes later, explanation. And it was just, and it, but it's one of those where you're like, oh yeah, uh, I, I was as an undergrad, I'd be like, wait, you could just, you just text them and they're just going to respond. Fortunately, this person I've known for like 25 years, like they, they're not, it's not going to come out of nowhere if I text them basically. No, no, I get it. And it, it like, I forget who I know. Sure. And, I, I, and like, I don't consider myself like a big wig in percussion world or yeah. anything. It's just like, I know all these people. And it's like, the, I even grew up with a lot of these people because of where I am in age, we were different places. But like, I remember being an undergrad with certain people and graduate and seeing a PAS. And it's like, boy, we changed. Like all of a sudden, I remember us being slimmer <laughs> and <laughs> our hair was darker. Now I see them and I'm just like, man, we've aged. But I got <laughs> all these people that like my students are like, that guy's so cool. And that lady's so cool. And I was like, I grew up with him. You want to go talk to him? They're like, what? Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, it's pretty, it's a, it's a nice, it's a nice thing to do, I think. And it, and it's good that they, that they see kind of like, these are just people, you know, like they, they shake your hand and they breathe and, you know, it was like um, food. <laughs> it was my first or second year here. I took about 15, 16 students to PASIC and the Quay duo performed. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I know Gene and Tim. I We grew up together. We're like the same age. And we went backstage and I was like, 
Gene Taylor, here's my students. And my students were like, with their mouth open. And they were yeah. like, hey. And my students were like, hey. <laughs> and and they like they didn't know how to act. And I'm like, oh, these are like these are like the coolest people in the world. I said, we've got cool people everywhere around here. But I would say and bring them up to them, and they would just like stare. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. But, we, but you and I were probably the same as an undergrad. If you tuck us up to somebody like that, phenomenal, you wouldn't know what to say. So it's a learning right. experience. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Do you head to master's degree right after undergrad? I did my undergrad and I rolled right into a master's degree because I said, <clears throat> I need to do this for multiple reasons. Uh, if I want to teach collegiate, that opens the door. And if I want to perform, I want to get some more experience uh, from a different teacher. I, then I knew immediately that that master's degree would open the door for several different things. It would it put me above some people, maybe teach at this high school. Uh, I wanted to get more experience. I wanted to move away and get that experience. And then there was seven years between my master's and doctoral degree. At first, a doctoral degree I did not want to do. I had been in college seven years, and I was like, I am done with this. Right, yeah. But there was reasons I, I ended up going on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I got you. Where, where did you do the master's? University of Tennessee in Knoxville. Okay. Who was there at the time? It was uh, F. Michael Combs um, and Keith Brown, um, because you had that jazz side and you had the yeah. uh, classical side. So I took drum set from Keith Brown and percussion from F. Michael Combs. And this was, uh, right before he retired. I was going to yeah. What was something kind of similar or different working with, with Combs that, you know, you gathered from your experience that was, that was, you didn't necessarily have, or you, maybe you got, just got more in depth with, with him. Um, my undergrad teacher and him are very different. My undergrad teacher, I really liked him, but he he was very loving. And I wish he would have pushed me more and be like, hey, that sucks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I show up my master's and I want to go to master's. It's like, you know, I got things I need to work on. I don't feel like I'm there quite yet. And I said, that's why I want to go to graduate school and, and so forth. And the idea, like I go in the door and I play excerpts and he was like, how long have you been playing that? And I said, about two years. He said, you could have fooled me. And I was just like, ah, uh, uh. <laughs> he was like, he was like, that is not how we're doing it. He's like, you gotta do X, Y, and Z. And I remember I'd play something and he goes, that just sucks. And I was like, ah, uh, you know, but that's what I needed because that's what the real world is like performing. You know, you, you either play it or you don't, you play it, you return if you don't play it, you don't get called back. Right. And I knew I needed that experience from a teacher. <clears throat> and Keith Brown was like that. Keith was really nice, but the door shut. And he's like, start swinging. And he was like, that's not swing. And I, <laughs> and I, I, it taught me a while to get to listening to myself differently. I'm, I'm, I'm learning how to listen to what I'm doing in a, in a way that was different than before. Mm -hmm. to get what he wanted out and be able to change. And that was new to me. You know, and he would say, well, play this style, play this style. And he said, they sound too close. you got to really, really dig into it and do this. Listen to this. Listen. I mean, I remember playing a pattern out of syncopation. He's like, these two lines, all I want to hear next week, we're going to do that for 30 minutes. And, you know, at first I was like, oh, but again, I was still in that learning process. 
you know, I'm still young. I'm in like, what, 22, 23. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But again, after I get out of it, I was like, I understood exactly. And it got me to the next level, both on the drum set side and on <clears throat> more of the classical side, because we did percussion, we did excerpts, timpani, snare drum, all that kind of stuff that I wanted because I wanted to be able comfortable, more comfortable if I wanted to apply to be in a playing drum set in some capacity or more on the classical side with the orchestra or anything in between. I also had a large amount of experience in drumline as well. And I felt really comfortable in that because of working with the high schools and stuff. Uh, and I got to work with the drumline at UT. I felt comfortable with that. To me, that was a different avenue. Uh, but getting there, the teachers weren't being mean. They were just being more realistic. Yeah. Like, that's not going to fly. You need more time on it. If you don't do this, this is going to happen. And I needed that. And that was that was a little hard coming out of my undergrad where everybody's like, hey, you're doing a great job. Thanks for being here. You know, you're doing like that versus like, dude, that sucks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I needed that because my first couple of years on the job, I was playing in a in a in an opera and I saw people who couldn't play. They weren't there the next day. Yeah, they were replaced. And I was like, whoa. And in the back of my mind, that's I heard it's like, if you can't play it, you're always uh, you can be replaced. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I tell my students that I said, you can always be replaced if you're a band director or something. Uh, you know, you, you got to You have to look good. You have to sound good. You have to be on time. You have to be prepared. A hundred percent. You know, and it's it's interesting I think what's what's the challenge on that, you know, directness is knowing if the like on the teaching side is knowing if the student can handle it, because some of them it's not that's not the way to communicate to them. No, especially nowadays. It's yeah. very it's, it's changed a lot. And that's right. one. I have some adjuncts or DMA students. And I said, you know what? I really wish they would start teaching you is a class for um, maybe music or the arts that talk about today's world. Like how do I don't, I don't use the word deal with students negatively, but how to deal with students and where they are now. Like we have phenomenal students, but they're dealing with so much that's changed in the last 10 years. I was like, I don't feel like I'm that old, but I'm far enough away. Or is it, I'm a detached. I don't know what it is. We need a class or more education on how to deal with people with like, even like, I don't want to say like mental concerns. Well, yeah. And that's all, it's a real problem. I mean, it's a real issue. Oh, I mean that it's just a real issue. And we're And the thing is, we're actually, dealing with or we're, we're attempting to deal with it in a way that we've never we basically didn't even acknowledge it probably when yes. you were, were in, in college no the the idea of somebody having uh, an issue with physical uh disabilities like i feel comfortable like that there's a way like anybody could be in my marching band if you're there trying I, there, i'm gonna find a place but now i have somebody phenomenal who might disappear for a week and nobody knows where they are and then they leave college and like i've had students i've lost that I've sat in my office and cried. Yeah. I'll admit it that they were really, really great people and they're not here in college. And it feels like they passed away. And I will say that. And there's nothing I can do about it. Right. Exactly. There's nothing I can do about it. And some people are like, oh, is it, did they come from this part of of the, no, they, 
it, it could have a 4.0 GPA or 2.0 GPA. They could yeah. come from a family with a lot of money to a family where they don't live with their parents. There's, there's no rhyme or reason. They're all in it. And so I, more than ever, especially being a director of bands, I see all these people. I'm responsible for their scholarship and all that. And I try to jump in and 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 help them as quick as possible and sometimes it's it's i can do it and sometimes i i can't i get and it's that's what's been really difficult and it's not i mean i'm in a d2 school now i came from a d1 it was the same thing in a different place mm-hmm. and i don't know if i need more training or we need more training it's changing year to year and i want my students to succeed and it's like i have to learn when to like allow them to, I don't want to say to do less at times and when I can ramp it back up to help them to succeed. That's what I've been doing more. And back when I grew up, that wasn't even an option. They said, if you feel bad, you can go home and quit or you can come back. (laughs) Those are your options. Right. (laughs) It's, it's hard across it. I see, I, I love all my students here. You know, I get the audition for me to come in here and, uh, when they leave, it's like part of me left with them because I knew them in high school. I saw them get here. For the majority of students, you know, I've had that relationship. It just takes a lot of you. And I've had some people say, well, you shouldn't be that invested in them. And I was like, but who is going to be invested in them if it's not me? Right. And I said, they're coming to undergrad. And I've got in arguments with people like that, they said, well, they're an adult. And I said, yes, they are adult. And I was an adult when I was an undergrad, but I had teachers that looked out for me to make sure I graduated and got out and didn't say anything dumb. And I said, it's still like that. I said, even though they're adult, somebody should be looking out for them and helping them. Just like if you and I work together and I noticed you were feeling bad, I'm going to approach you and be like, Hey, are you doing okay? Hey, you know, like that. It's, yeah. it's, there really is no difference to me. But when they're younger, it's like I'm not going to be badgering them, but I'm keeping my eye out on every student and trying to make a note of like, are, are they having a hard time? What can I do or another faculty member? Because we have counseling services. You know, we have a physician on campus. It's like what is there to help them succeed? Right. Uh, I told my students, I teach a class. I said, I'm a teacher. I said, I am a parent. I am um, a counselor. I am a coach. Yeah. And the coach and counselor is more of what we are lately. And I'm fine with that. I've been doing more research on that. My wife's finishing her doctoral degree in music ed, and they've been talking a lot about that more and more. And some people don't want to help and learn. And I was like, well, maybe you shouldn't be here. I I mean, I, I say it like that. Maybe you shouldn't be here. It's a, it's a challenge that I think is just going to, it's just a normal thing now. Yes. Do you, after grad school, do you go to a doctorate or do you, are you, what happens after grad, after the master's? After my master's, I went, I went in, I wanted to go into teaching and playing. So in the spring semester, uh, before I graduated, a lot of us were talking about, hey, I got this job and I got that job. And I said, well, I got a job, too. My undergrad had called me and said, I know you're coming back. We'd like to hire you to teach some percussion students, uh, maybe a percussion studio and a class they had called humanities that all students had to take. And I was like, sure, I'll do that. And then I, I was also working at a high school as like the percussion tech for the marching band and stuff. 
and then I got I had a relation already because I had been playing with the like the symphony and the opera. And then I started building up a private studio between eight or 10 students from the high school. So I was able to make probably in the mid 20s, like about twenty five thousand dollars at that time. And that was okay. (laughs) I could get by. And I said, I want to I want to do this and see where it goes. And I kept doing that and doing that. But this was back in the days where you could teach 12 or 13 hours as an adjunct, but you wouldn't get paid full time. (laughs) It was allowable. And I was like, oh, man, I'm teaching a lot. Then I picked up another college and I taught a world music class over here. And I started picking up more things. And I was like, I like this. And I was like, but how long can I do this? And that's where that doctoral degree kind of came in the back of my mind. And I was like, everybody's like, you need to go back. You need to go back. And I was like, I don't want to go back. I don't want to go back. And so <laughs> about five years out, I said, you know what? I'm going to try doing this. Mm-hmm. Try doing this. Uh, and so, like, you know, I was playing recitals and stuff, so I didn't have to really work up much. It was already there. Excerpts. <clears throat> so literature, I was pre- performing with a professional uh, percussion trio. The three of us went through our masters together and we were touring throughout the South before it was even popular. <laughs> we didn't even know that at the time. We just wanted to have fun and play trio music. Around the time of the financial crisis where 08, 09, yep. everything just went bam. Right. And it changed everything. And I was just like, I want to go back to grad school. So I applied to all these grad schools. And they're like, yes, you can come here, but we have no assistantships. Nobody hardly had assistantships during that financial crunch. And I was like, I can't pay for two, three, maybe four years of doctoral school. Right. And then there was one school in the union <laughs> or one state in the union that had plenty of money. It was called North Dakota. <laughs> yeah. It was called fracking, and that's right. yeah, that's right. It was the it was literally it. <laughs> yeah, so you know, the the hard thing was, I, I had been working full time and making money what with what I really loved to do, and I had to give, I had to just like cut that and move away to go to doctoral school, and it was really weird at first. I struggled with it because it's like I was teaching in a college playing with all these professional groups. And I had to hang it up to go back to school. Yeah. And I knew it was going to be tough. People are like, dude, you're going to have a first, your first semester is going to be really weird. And they were right. Yeah. They were right. Well, and what was it like to be, to, to not be in the South, the deep South anymore, and then go to the northmost point in the Midwest, basically? It was a culture shock for me. I bet (laughs) it was culture shock for me. And it wasn't like anything like really, really negative. First of all, the temperature was different. Like I remember getting over there and some of the students, we want to talk to you about the winners here. And it was nice. They're like, you have to buy this coat, not a coat, but this coat and these socks and all that. And I bought those items. I still own them today. Uh, It was very different. Uh, Like I said, nothing negative. Like, you know, I'm from the deep South. I went to school in the deep South and we're, and again, I'm not saying anything like like we're very outgoing down here. Yeah, yeah. And up there, people are a little bit more closed off to people coming in. Like in the South, you come in and we're like, hey, man, come on in. Up there, there was a little bit of a wall put up until they got to know you. 
Right. And it, it was very different at times. It was very different at times. And I got through it. Like, they didn't really shake hands. Some people did, but that idea of shaking hands and, and, and things like that that I thought were commonplace didn't exist at times up there. There was, you know, there's things I loved about it. There's other things like, you know, like marching band wasn't too, too big up there outside of the two D1 schools. And one of the reasons they wanted me to come up there was to help with the marching band, the drum line. They knew that I had gone to a really good high school. I went to the University of Tennessee. I worked at a really good high school and they wanted that element up there. And I got a full ride and I got, um, you know, a GA position with made money. And I started playing with the symphony immediately up there and the opera. And in my second year up there, I got a job at another small school. And by my third year during my in my DMA, I was I was hired full time over there, but I don't think anybody knew that. At another mm. <laughs> and I met a lot of good friends because it was in Fargo. Yeah, and Fargo has a uh, three schools. Yep, and Concordia is right across the river where Dave Eiler was teaching. Right, and then right two miles from Concordia or less, there was uh, Minnesota State University over in Moorhead and Kenyon Williams was yep. teaching there. Mm-hmm. And then like I was at North Dakota State with Sigurd Johnson and we had a lot of other percussionists. So we all got to play in the symphony together and it was fun yeah. and all that. But I'll tell you, for somebody who likes to go outside when it was four months of below zero, that was hard. Yeah. You know, I'm sitting out here in marching band at the beginning of October and like this white stuff falls out of the air. <laughs> and i'm just like whoa you know and uh of course i move up there and like my first semester like i'm coming from the sec and i was yeah, like yeah. oh north dakota state you know it's not the same well these people like beat the crap out of everybody we went over to the university of minnesota they threw us in the end zone the band and we like ran them over and i was like what and then we just we end up going to the national championship my first year and the second year and the third year and the fourth year. And I think the fifth year we didn't go. We got to the semifinal. And then we went the sixth year and the seventh year. And I was like, this is weird, <laughs> which made it a lot of football. I mean, yes, a lot was, of football, <laughs> a lot of football like, you know, like, you know, I couldn't go home until the second week of December because that was like when the semifinals were. Right. And then uh, we'd be going to Frisco around uh, getting ready around uh, the first of January to drive all the way from North Dakota down to Texas to play more football. And here's right. this team up there is just annihilating everybody. Yeah. And it was it was a weird atmosphere. I was like, you know, I, I, I came from the southeast. I was went to Tennessee. That's humongous. And maybe it wasn't that a 20,000 seat stadium was sold out it was so loud i had to wear you know or wear earplugs and i could just feel the pressure feel the pressure it'd be like 60 degrees inside and negative 40 outside while we're playing and i'm just like where am i (laughs) but it was a really fun experience it it was it was just a fun experience we had a big drum line the the last year i end up because i end up working for north dakota state after i graduated yeah and by the time i left we had like 36 people on the drum line. I was like looking for instruments for people to play. It yeah. had it, it had grown so uh, well. And the percussion, we grew uh, quite a bit over there. And we just had, it was a good time. But it was, uh, I was very far away from home. I, I didn't, I would have stayed up there, but I missed where I grew up. And so Oklahoma was really close. And so I looked for a job back down south uh, and so forth. And that's how I came back. 
I was like, oh, oh, yeah, that is the school that is in every national championship and is on this ridiculous winning streak. And it's just like you said, it's just beating the crap out of everybody. <laughs> I mean, they're still good. They're still yeah. winning, but it's not like we'd have a game and a close 70 to zero. Next yeah. game, <laughs> 60 to zero. Yeah, and I'm just like, and we were playing really good teams, and we would, everybody was like, oh, it had arguments. They're like, North Dakota State's D two. I was like, no, they're D one. They're like, but they play in the national. I said, there's something called the FCS. And they're like, people didn't know about that. Right. They would argue, yeah. argue. Well, y'all don't play any D one. Actually, play Kansas State. Beat them. Kansas beat them. We went down to Iowa, Iowa, <clears throat> and they were ranked ten. We beat them. I remember sitting there. That was a big deal. We beat Iowa. Yeah. And yeah. everyone's like, nobody's ever beaten like a top 10 team from this, you know, blah, blah. And it just would beat all these people. And I was like, this is so bizarre. <laughs> yeah. That is wild. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's crazy. <laughs> Dissertate. What was the final? Was it a dissertation or a concert? What was the what was the finally finalizing capstone stuff for the doctorate? Okay, so part of the doctorate, you know, the big things we're doing three recitals. One of them is going to be a lecture recital based on your dissertation. I love timpani. I grew up <clears throat> playing timpani, timpani, and timpani. I love it. And friends would be like, you nerd. And I was like, that's, I make, you know how much money I make playing timpani? Yeah, that's, yeah, not exactly. why, that's not why I went into playing timpani. I just love it. <clears throat> that is my default favorite instrument to play. I feel very comfortable. So I did my dissertation on timpani. I had this idea, you know, keep in mind, I was in my 30s when I went back for my doctoral degree. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> mid-30s when I wrote it, dissertation. And I had this idea in my mind that Tiffany wasn't being taught really anymore. And the importance was of it was in decline. Mm -hmm. So I did a lot of surveys and a lot of history, talking about the history of it, the importance, it, how it exists like in everything. But the ultimate goal was to show the thoughts and feelings across the U.S. And I had some people from Europe chiming in. Of course, this was well ahead of uh, knowing that, like, hey, there's a Tiffany Facebook group and all this stuff. We, so, you know, it, it, yeah. that hadn't, hadn't really come about, this idea of all these chats and all that to help one another. If I would have waited three years, my life would have been easier. So I came back and after it was done, immediately found that – you know, like this idea of uh, conservatory-based schools versus non-conservatory-based schools. Uh, and the conservatories, they all were like, timpani is one of the most important instruments you need to study and because of X, Y, and Z. In the non-conservatory, it was opposite. They were like, well, timpani is not really relevant for us in today's culture. I teach it sometimes, or I'm just paraphrasing some of the things. It was night and day uh, yeah. that they were like, yeah, it's over here. I work on it. Like most of most of the people did a survey. Are like, yeah, we spend like you know half a semester on timpani, mm -hmm. and you know I'm I'm more concerned that my students doing this and all that. And it backed up, of course, my idea that I had. And I tried to talk about the importance of understanding the timpani, especially as a percussionist. You're using your ear. That's the one instrument you use. You're yeah. building those oral skills that can help with so many other things, especially you're going to be a band director. Tiffany is found in the orchestra. It's found in the band. It can be found in a jazz band. It's in the marching band. It's still a solo instrument. And I talked about, I asked a question, is a Tiffany a solo instrument? Man, you should have saw the response to that in the comments. And we talked about the top 20 pieces in the repertoire at that time. I wanted people to rank their top 20 and all that. And it was pretty 
pretty uh, standard to what we know uh, still today. It was just interesting. But to get the feedback on how people were seeing it at that time was very, very interesting and all that. And it, the majority of like state, well, I, I can't say state or private, non-conservatory versus conservatory, that style was night and day. Yeah. Night and day. And it backed up my idea that the majority of feedback I got was like, yeah, I teach timpani. I don't see it as important today as maybe 15, 20 years ago. No, and I, I can't say everybody, it, not everybody said that, but generally that was the consensus. And I told them timpanists and they were just like horrified. What do you mean? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a lot of in it's not all conservatories, but a lot of conservatories, the focus is to get to push you towards orchestral. So I completely get that viewpoint. Yeah. <laughs> no, it was interesting. I really liked it. The day would have been a lot easier to write it. Yeah, 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 right. <laughs> <laughs> of course, we're all in that boat. When you look on Facebook, right. like there's a group that I could, whatever. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I know. I know. I know. All right, well, uh, Nick, I finish out with a segment called Random Ask Questions. So first question is, what's an issue in percussion education? Or you, you could do it in composition, too, if you want to. But something that most gets under your skin or drives you the most nuts. In percussion education, I'm, I'm, I'm a clear believer, like at the undergrad level, like I want to touch on as many things as I can. Yes, a student will gravitate to a certain instrument or two. But to me, undergrad is a time where they need to have, I don't even want to say a broad knowledge, but, you know, knowledge about everything here. Like at this school, they're going to learn about the marching arts. They're going to understand orchestral. We have a steel band. Got steel band. Uh, I talk about world music, specifically uh, Latin American music, uh, music from Africa, even other instruments that we might not have, but I want them to go see that instrument is from this culture and something like that. So they can have a broad experience. As, I want them, as much as possible, I want to touch on several different things. And then if they choose to go a graduate route, they can narrow it down if they want. Because mm-hmm. I think in today's world, when they go in the classroom, if they're going to be a middle school or elementary or high school or collegiate, they need to have an idea of what exists around the world versus Oklahoma in the United States. Because I, I told him, I was like, there's so much wonderful music in the world and all these cultures that go into the religion and their food and their dress. And I was like, you have no idea what's out there until you delve into it. And that's where I, I hear a lot of people I know, they're like, they only go this route or this route. And I was like, I try to go as wide as possible. Yeah. That experience. Other questions. Uh, what is the most impractical item of clothing you own? <laughs> impractical? Uh, in your mind, what do you mean by impractical? Uh, it's something that maybe it's in the closet and you never, you see it and you're like, Maybe I should get rid of that, and then you just—it's still there or something. Yeah, I have a lot of that. So, <laughs> you know, like <clears throat> I'm bad. My wife—I call a hoarder. I'm glad she's not here. She'd be like, "What?" Um, <laughs> there's just things that need to go. Uh, you know, that tuxedo that I will never fit into—that I think I will. Of course, yeah. Or that suit—it's not there. I need to give it away. 
or take it to uh, the Salvation Army yeah. uh, because I, I'm not fitting in that anymore. And my hopes <laughs> need to stop. And I just need to buy buy a new one and stuff. I would say that's probably the practical kind of stuff. Or I have way too many coats and I need to get get rid of them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I got gotcha. you. That's great. <laughs> All right. Has anyone ever nailed an impression of you? And if so, how'd they do it? Oh, my goodness. Uh, my students do this. Hmm. My students do this. Man, I, I don't know if they, they, they like me or they don't, but like like a Halloween, I was sitting there in band and like I heard all these students laughing. And I turn around and one of my tuba players comes in. He's trying to – he dressed like me. Uh, this is funny. Like he had a he had a um, – a beer, but he decided to put baby powder all in and all that. And, 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 he, and, he's, and he's holding, he's holding his phone like I do and all that. And he was like, he's saying all these things. And I was like, Oh my God. And the students are like video recording this and all that. And, uh, that was the closest impersonation. I, I think I have it on Facebook from a Halloween ago and all that. And supposedly <laughs> I found out the other day, they have Dr. Myers bingo now. Oh, so nice. I called on to it the other day. They would ask questions and I would answer it. And I hear like the trumpet section going, yes. And I was like, what's going on? What's going on? <laughs> and we're, we're and it's like this. And then it, it like somebody spilled the beans and they were like, somebody told somebody, they just told somebody and told me, they're like, they got bingo going on. That's why they ask you all these random questions. Ah. Uh. That's and, awesome. Yeah, and so like that's the best. That's an honor. You, you got to be honored, Nick, on that one. The first nation, and when I first got here, they start yelling "Dad" at me when I was out in public. Hey, Dad! I said, "Can't do that. Yeah. What are you doing like that?" You know, no. It used to be bad. It used to just come out and hang in the office. Like, I need to get out of here. I got phone calls to make because <laughs> I'm very fortunate. I have a really cool office over here mm. <laughs> it just keeps going that's one of the perks of my job i love my office awesome <laughs> that's great what is your biggest kitchen mess up <laughs> okay okay this is a good one all right so when i lived in north dakota i got involved in this whole new beer culture Mm, yeah, and, and all that, and so like some of my alumni, they my alumni everywhere I go, they invite me over. Like that's how I went on my first skiing trip last year, and so I went over. My alumni invited me over, and they're like, "I started making my own beer," and I was like, "What?" And he shows me all this stuff. So when I'm now here in Oklahoma, I ordered uh, some items to <laughs> make my own beer. So mm. I got this fermenter up on the counter, and the valve broke. Oh no! And so like gallons of this. This this stuff just go all over the floor. My wife was just like livid. She's like, I just cleaned that. And I was just like, that's your biggest worry. And it went all over the mat. And it's like, you know, that stuff, it was fermenting. So it had all that just pulp in it. And it's on the floor and it stinks. Yeah. It stinks. It's, I'm not gonna tell you what it smelled like. And I'm just like, you think I, I didn't do that on purpose? I stick my finger in the plug. We had to get it into the tub, and then we had all this on the floor. God knows it probably just went underneath everything. So we're in there, and she's just looking at me, and I was like, I didn't mean to do that. It was only three gallons that came out. 
And so that was probably the biggest mishap for me. And that wasn't long ago, maybe two years ago. Ah. Ooh. <laughs> That's amazing. Did, that, did the smell ever come out or is it still? Yeah, the smell, we got the smell out. But it was just, ugh. <laughs> and I was more worried. I was like, that, you know how many hours it took me to get from here to that point? <laughs> and my wife's like, you know, I don't care. I don't care. Uh, that is awesome oh my gosh (laughs) Nick what is other questions what is a great movie and what is a terrible movie man great movie Uh, (laughs) there are so many good movies I mean I'm a history nerd, so I grew up loving the Indiana Jones films, Mm, especially the first and the third. That got me into history. I love that. I mean, there's so many about that. Like, I just saw the new Indiana Jones, and I liked it. And it's like, I love Harrison Ford and Indiana Jones. I mean, it's just good. I I mean, children can watch it. Uh, You know, if you're into religion, it like it links into it and all that. Now, a bad, (laughs) bad movie. So bad can be like funny bad or just like bad. Um, the drumline North Dakota State. We'd always talk about a bad movie was Pootie Tang <laughs> <laughs> because I wrote a cadence called Pootie Tang and they watched it and they were like, "That was the one of the worst superhero movies I've ever seen." <laughs> superhero. <laughs> yeah, he's kind of a superhero. All right. Yeah, yeah, he fights off people with that belt. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's funny, but it's just like one of those things you're like, I saw it once, that's fine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I saw it once and it's fine. That, that's a good choice. All right, what's a favorite book? Book. I'm not really a book reader. When I do read books, I read history books. Oh, man, that's a hard one. I don't have one book I gravitate to. I, I love books about European history. Mm. So whatever falls into that, I mean, the goal for my wife and I, we want to retire and move to Europe. That's our plan that we have set in place. And so I read a lot about history there because I want to move. Our idea is to move to Germany and be able to retire and just hit the train and go wherever we want. So like the last five, six years, I've been reading books on Europe, specifically Germany, in hopes that that dream will come true. Yeah. What is there an author? that you that you like or gravitate to well you know like i love rick steves when i read his stuff and yeah yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah i mean that man he he, he moves around the world he probably he is tired of it but <laughs> yeah no yeah. his stuff is really good and it's and it's 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 a, it's a little funny because i whatever the story in my brain i always go with rick steves is I was in, uh, my wife was teaching a, a, a summer course in Siena, Italy, and there was a restaurant that was near like one of the like thousand Italian restaurants in, in, you know, a city in, in Italy. And somebody walked up and they and they found the restaurant and the, and the guy's just like, Rick Steves, like, like he like screamed it out. Like, and of course we we're like, yes, I, we know that Rick Steves really likes this place, but you know, it's like, settle that. <laughs> all right well on the travel side where is somewhere that you have not traveled to that you still want to get to i mean i love going to europe 
I just got back from uh, Oslo, Norway, a couple of weeks ago, uh, being over there with the Oslo Philharmonic. I would like to get to other countries in Europe. I'd like to get more into Canada. It's such a beautiful mm. country. I've been to Winnipeg and stuff, but I'd like to go uh, up to Nova Scotia and see some more of that. You know, trace that lines that goes up to Greenland. You know, the, supposedly the Vikings, they're finding that. They've had that route that came through to North America. That's that that's fascinating to me. Iceland would be fun to get to. I like the cold when I can visit it and leave it as yeah. well. Yes, <laughs> right. <laughs> I've always thought it'd be fun to go to Asia, no specific country, just to get over there. I want to see a different part of the world. I'm mm-hmm. not a fan of heat, so the Caribbean looks pretty, but I'm that's a little too much sun and heat for me. Gotcha. So, so yes, more of Europe, Canada, and parts of Asia. Excellent. All right, we we talked a little bit about golf, but uh, but broader than that, do you have a sports fandom? Cycling. Oh, okay. Yes, like uh, in my twenties, I started getting more into cycling. I love riding my bike. I mean, when I was in my twenties and thirties, I put thousands of miles through my bike. I love watching the Tour de France, the Vuelta, España, uh, the Giro, the Italia. We used to have several bike races here in America, but they just they didn't last because of that culture. Like yeah. in Georgia, we had the Tour of Georgia. You had the Tour of California. You had the the, the, the race in Colorado. Even they used to have the Tour of Missouri. That yeah, was a big that's deal. right. They were yeah. all short-lived, and I yeah. love that. I love that. And for some reason, I was like, ooh, and I was – and that was one of the healthiest things I ever did was picking up the, the bicycle. And that could have been, we could have talked about that probably earlier, but riding my bike, I just love, I can ride all day. Uh, and so like, I'm always on, on here on, on, on the computer watching it because it doesn't come on TV really in the U S I mean, I've got some apps on my phone. Uh, it's just fun. And that's something you can do until your 60s, 70s and 80s, as long as you take care of your body and it's so healthy. All right. When you head back to Georgia, uh, visit family or whatever, where is somewhere that you have to eat before you can even like talk to people or like get this in my body so I can like focus on? <laughs> uh, well, when we go to Georgia, I mean something as simple as Zaxby's, like the chicken place. Uh, yeah. I love I love Zaxby's. We don't have that around here. We have canes, but it's different. Like yeah, yeah. Zaxby's, my mom was like, that's all you want when you get here? I was like, Mom, I haven't had it forever. I just- <laughs> that's all you want. <laughs> and then there's some restaurants in downtown Augusta that I've been eating at since I was an undergrad. There's this place called the Bull Weevil. It's right down on the river. It's really, really simple, but it remind. I just like what it- the taste. It reminds me of growing up, and I put those things together. And there's a couple of places. There's a German restaurant in town that I relate a lot of memories to. Uh, with with my family and all that, and of course the food is good, yeah, and all that. So yeah, those are those are things I look for, and it just is is more than just the food. It's just memories and just yeah, reminders. Awesome. Last couple strangest, funniest, or most bizarre performance moment that involves you. <laughs> I, I I I've I've been in a lot of a. Uh, strange performances you know from somebody all of a sudden in the opera you're playing there and then they they're gone because they got sick and they're just gone so nobody's playing that big moment in in the opera you know they just ran out because they got sick or 
somebody like me, I was playing the chime and I, I always put my hand on the note next to the one I play. Well, for some reason it was really dark and I hit the wrong note before the soprano came in. I was like, Oh my God. And I thought I was not coming back. Uh, I don't like to mention that. <clears throat> that was like a one timer. And yeah, I was very young on that. I've just seen a lot of stuff. Things go wrong, a drum head break, and it's like, well, what are you going to do? I guess you're going to play on the bad drum head, you know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> people showing up late because of uh, some of the silliest things uh, that might have happened. Uh, <laughs> Lights going out during a performance. Mm-hmm. I played a concerto here at my school two years ago, Timpani Concerto with the band, and we were playing and the lights went off. And I, 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 it was during my cadenza. And I didn't know what to do. And then all of a sudden, a light above me came on. It was a green light. I felt like something on X-Files. And the students are like, looking at me like, they don't know what to do. And then it went off again, and the lights came back up. We found out some kid was leaning against the wall and turned the lights off. (laughs) That's all it took. One lean. And I, 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 I... but it goes back. You know your music, and you can play. I kept going. The band had a hard time. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. Oh, man. I'm sure there's there's many more out there. You know, you you live through so much stuff that you kind of forget about it. I mean, had a drum major at one school. It showed up supposed to wear white drill masters. He had black on. I said, "How did you manage that?" Found white electrical tape wrapped both his feet. Nice. You know, all kind of stuff like that from running, a, you know, having graduate students run uh, trucks into walls and break lights, this and that. I still I still a performance getting there, but I've seen all kind of stuff. And most of it I just decided to forget about. So we didn't have to report it. <laughs> you know, you don't make you don't make an issue out of something or else sometimes it becomes a bigger issue. And you're just like, yeah, that's. That was really bad. We're going to ignore that and keep moving on because, you know, the less somebody knows, the better it is. Yeah. <laughs> what happened with that thing? I, I don't know. Uh, I, um, I, still happens today. I just go, just, you didn't see that. <laughs> oh, man. All right, Nick, last question. What one piece of art could be movies, uh, music, books, podcasts, YouTube clips, theater, visual art, poetry, anything has impacted you the most recently? Most recently impacted me. Oh, I, as I've gotten older, I love going to art museums, especially mm. seeing paintings. Yeah. And, you know, growing up, I remember an uh, undergrad, you know, we're, we're talking about expressionism. And what mm-hmm. piece of art do they link to expressionism? Probably the scream, right? Yeah. Edvard Monk's The Scream. Well, I've seen all of the screams. You know, you're taught that there's one. There are several. And so, like, expressionism goes into that music that I had to learn how to compose based around serialism and all yeah. that stuff. And that painting's always there been in my mind. And it's like it, it has changed my life because of that relation between, like, art, literature, and music. And I always had that in the back of my mind when we want to do something serialism, uh, based around serialism, even even if it's really dissonant, dissonant, 
or a more of a tonal side. It's always been there. And when I got to go to school in Norway one summer for an internship, I got to see Edvard Munch's grave, and he's from Norway. And I got to see all those screams. And so it kind of tied it together. And in Europe, uh, there's a lot of music being composed that's still based around that. Yeah. And my own music. And so I know that's really weird. That one piece of art has been in my mind as I compose. It's always stood there. I saw it in a book. I saw it in life. And that was part of a life experience going to Europe, studying there and seeing. I just saw it again a few weeks ago. So I know it's like a bizarre piece of art, but like it's been in my mind for like 25 years and been a part of so many things. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's amazing. That's awesome. I could say my marimba. That's a piece of art that I had to save. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It also counts. <laughs> I might have known that there was mul- there were multiple screams. I'm sure this is something I'd have to I'd have to really think about. It's really weird. There's multiple ones, and you can Google them and look them up, and you're just like, did somebody make a copy of it? It's like, no, he made multiple uh, versions of the scream, and they're very different. So are they are they this the is it like the same face, or is it just he's he's like taking like the expression and shifted it over? What's what's different? It's the same face, you know, it might be look a little bit different in it, but it's the same face, quasi the background, just the color is very different. One has less color, one ha- the one that we know of has the most the vibrant color. Yeah, but yeah. Really mm-hmm. interesting. So I'm sitting there like multiple streams, and all of a sudden in the Edvard Monk Museum, they would only it this place is under lock and key. I'm talking about because somebody stole it at one time <clears throat> and all that. So it comes out of this vault. Like one, oh, one every. It's on a time, so it comes out of this vault, and then it'll it'll go back in, and then over here the other one will come up, and it's in a hmm. really dark room. Okay, and so like it's on a timer, like it's, there's three of them, and it's like here, and then that disappears, and everybody runs over here, and then this one opens up, and they got security everywhere. Like you can take a picture if a flash goes off, it's not a good day for you. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it was really interesting. And then seeing the rest of his art, his woodcuts and everything else, like this man was very prolific. Mm-hmm. And I'm in like I'm in like this area where he grew up and it was just it was really cool. You know, when you find like when you go to somewhere and you're like, This composer lived here, he's buried there. I'm looking at music and for musicians, we're like, That's so cool. Like you can see his penmanship or whoever mm-hmm. it is. Yeah. We're kind of losing that because people don't really do pen to paper anymore or pencil more on finale and all that. So it's, it's a different realm of like these phenomenal compositions. Some people still do. And I do, I hand write things. Uh, but that idea of seeing the original is starting to disappear. So great. Getting to chat with Nick. I wish him the best of luck going forward with all of the programs at East Central University, and I look forward to hopefully meeting him in person very soon. Thanks again, Nick. This week's rave is the 2007 documentary, Respect Yourself, The Stax Record Story, narrated by Samuel L. Jackson and directed by Morgan Neville and Robert Gordon, now streaming on Amazon Prime. The ability to watch this actually came from one of this world's greatest resources, 
the local public library. I saw that this video was available and finally got to see it, and I was so glad that I did. For those not familiar, Stax Records is a record company based out of Memphis, Tennessee, that ended up taking the moniker Soulsville, USA, and was really considered the sole capital of the world in the 1960s and early 1970s. It was somewhat of a rival to Motown Records, which was then at the peak of its powers, but would eventually carve out its own famous sound for which it was well known for. Again, you may not be familiar with the name Stacks, but you are probably familiar with some of its most famous performers. Isaac Hayes, Booker T and the MGs, Sam and Dave, William Bell, Carla and Rufus Thomas, Johnny Taylor, the Staple Singers, and its biggest star, Otis Redding. While the company came of age during the 1960s in a very turbulent time in the United States regarding civil rights and a particularly tough time in the South, the company stood for a while as a symbol of integration, particularly with its musician lineups, where its key house band, Booker T and the MGs, were made up of two white men and two black men, and many of its musicians performed in integrated bands. Doesn't mean everything was great, but it was the case for a time there. The best part of the documentary is how it really features the music and live performances of this music throughout. There's a ton of great footage of Otis Redding, Sam and Dave, Isaac Hayes, and many other performers in their prime included in this documentary. And you are struck throughout by just how much incredible music came from this label so quickly. So if the songs Soul Man, Hold On I'm Coming, Sitting on the Dock of the Bay, Try a Little Tenderness, Walk On By, Walk in the Dog, Knock on Wood, and the aforementioned Respect Yourself come to mind among many, many others, then this is going to be a great historical documentary to watch. Again, streaming on Amazon Prime. Check out and enjoy Respect Yourself, the Stacks Record Story. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud and Spotify and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete's at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time. Until then.